Have you ever thought back on your life and noticed that there are these small moments that led you to where you are today? I'm Alan Brooks from Building Momentum. In my new show, Breadcrumbs, I trace the pivotal moments of people's lives that lead them to where they are today. That I was asked to go backstage and I was able to meet Jesus. And I just very distinctly remember thinking, I want to do that. In the sunshine in this leather couch, I found my two big passions. I truly believe as an adult, I'm just trying to recreate that moment. It turns out that that was the beginning of a couple of decades in journalism. And that changed my life. Through storytelling and conversation, our show traces the circuitous trail of how the creatives and intellectuals of today got to where they are. On Breadcrumbs, we'll pick up these crumbs that were left behind and see how they led us to where we are today and leading us to who we're still becoming. Take a listen to Breadcrumbs, an exciting, independently run new podcast. But my mom just loved the arts and she loved theater from a very young age would take me to go see musicals. And this led to my mom taking me when I was about five or six to go see Jesus Christ Superstar. And, you know, I remember being sort of taken by it. But the thing that I most remember was that when Jesus was being crucified during the musical, I was so mad and I was so upset that no one was doing anything about this, that people were just letting him be crucified, that I stood up on my chair and demanded that they take him down from the cross. But I was screaming and yelling and crying. I mean, I was so, this is a real thing that I'm watching. The sort of perk that came from this was that afterward, the actors were so moved by the fact that this five-year-old kid thought that this was happening that I was asked to go backstage and I was able to meet Jesus. And he shook my hand and was like, it's all pretend, it's fine. And I, I think that's kind of like when I fell in love with theater. Hey, welcome to Breadcrumbs. I'm Alan Brooks. I'm the chief creative officer at Building Momentum. We're a creative problem-solving agency. And we believe that everybody has a calling, a vibration, something undeniable within us all. And sometimes we're put on that path in the earliest possible way, and sometimes life throws curveballs, but the calling never quits. This show retraces those breadcrumbs, these pivotal moments that we have in our lives, the ones that lead us back to ourselves and who we were meant to be. They help us find our true calling. I'm going to be talking to a wide variety of people from all sorts of industries, all sorts of backgrounds, and find out how they responded to their true north and find out the parallel lives they might have been going on if they had ignored their calling. I want to unpack this through storytelling and conversation. I hope that everyone listening can start thinking about your true north and and if you're headed in that direction. So let's start following some breadcrumbs back to see where it all began and who we're still becoming. My guest today is Bernardo Cabara. So Bernardo is a third-generation Breadcrumbs guest. We got to Bernardo through Melanie Maras, whom we met through Adrian Todd's awesome conversations. You need to go back and listen to them if you haven't already. If you have, welcome to the future. Bernardo's conversation with me is important because he really digs in to this push and pull between worship and irreverence that he's had throughout his life and how he was trying to express that through his acting and writing. He's somebody who knew what his path was at a really young age, but did not find immediate success with it. You know, the starving artist cliche exists for a reason. And Bernardo was so open-hearted in our conversation and so vulnerable and so kind in sharing that story with me. I really appreciated it. And I hope you do too. He's a wonderful guy. You are wonderful listeners. Let's go follow some breadcrumbs. 
I'm not sure how accurate this story is because it's kind of grown in mythical proportions in my home. And my mom tells this story a lot. And so there's that weird thing in my head where I don't know what I remember and what is my mom telling this story at dinner parties to kind of explain why her son became a theater person. But the story goes something like this. I think in a totally different existence and if she was able to grow up in a different country at a different time, my mother for sure would have been a dancer. She is obsessed with dancing. She watches So You Think You Can Dance. She knows all the names of the characters, like all those people. She watches dance shows with like real passion. Like this is what she wanted to do with her life. And, you know, I think growing up in Mexico in the 70s, there was just like no, it wasn't like a realistic path to go just be a dancer. And my mom also, I remember, was always taking dance classes. I have a very early memory of sneaking into my mom's closet and putting on her tap shoes and holding her castanets because uh, my mom would love flamenco dance classes. But my mom just loved the arts and she loved theater. And she, from a very a young age, would take me to go see musicals. This became like a thing that we both loved and had in common together. And this led to my mom taking me when I was about five or six to go see Jesus Christ Superstar in Houston, Texas. And I remember loving this musical. And I, you know, I remember being sort of taken by it. I'm originally from Mexico City. And so you'll be surprised, but I grew up deeply Catholic, lots of church, lots of pictures of La Virgen all over my house. And so Jesus Christ Superstar, I think was a very confusing show for five or six year old me because all of this was real. It's this real guy who I've been told is very important. But the thing that I most remember was that when Jesus was being crucified during the musical, I was so mad and I was so upset that no one was doing anything about this, that people were just letting him be crucified, that I stood up on my chair and demanded that they take him down from the cross. And I probably a theater of like 400 people. My mom can give you more exact details, but I was screaming and yelling and crying. I mean, I was so this is a real thing that I'm watching. And the whole audience started laughing because they were like, oh, look how cute this five-year-old kid is yelling in Spanglish for them to take down Jesus from the cross. The sort of perk that came from this was that afterward, the actors were so moved by the fact that this five-year-old kid thought that this was happening that I was asked to go backstage and I was able to meet Jesus. I got to meet like the actual Jesus and he, I, I remember like the actor, I, I can still see him and he shook my hand and was like, it's all pretend, it's fine. And I, I think that's kind of like when I fell in love with theater and I blame my mother for what came after and me pursuing it as a career because I think her love of dance sort of seamlessly transitioned into me wanting to be a theater person and my life was doomed forever. That's incredible. Is that where the, the, cracks started to show? Are you still religious? I mean, I remember I saw Exorcist, The Exorcist, when I was nine or ten. And the movie scared me in a way that nothing has ever scared me because I grew up with stories of true exorcisms. Like, I grew up in a house where people were told, like, exorcism is real. Right. Like, your tia, whatever, in San Luis Potosí like, had the devil take her over and they, like, a priest came to her house. So, like, that movie, The Exorcist, wasn't, like, a fake horror movie to me. Right. It was a documentary. So when I was nine, I slept in my parents' bed after seeing The Exorcist. I was way too big. And my dad was like, you're too old for this. And I was like, no, I just saw this documentary about the devil taking over 
So no, the, the answer to the question is no cracks started then. Really? Okay, so you were, you were locked in still. At five, you got a chance to see that the blurring of your reality, right? Because you thought you were seeing another documentary, just a, a real life one, and you thought you were seeing Jesus get crucified, but then you got a chance to see that, no, this is a place where we, this is a different kind of temple, a different kind of church where we come to celebrate a different kind of thing. Well, I think it did fuck with my life because it showed me the power of theater, right? And it, it did right. like really make me be like, whoa, this is a really amazing thing that's happening. Like, I just believed Jesus was being crucified. I obviously didn't consciously think these things are five. But from right. that moment on, I loved theater. I, you know, my mom would take me to lots of musicals. And it was just like, I adored it. You know, I just, wow, the power of this, like what it can do, you know, it just felt so special. So how long was it before you found yourself being drawn to performing or writing or creating yourself? It was very quick because I, and it's funny because I didn't really think I wanted to do theater until I was 18. So I don't know what kind of, you know, mental gymnastics I was doing to not see the obvious, but I was the kid who, when friends would come over, I would write a play, force my cousins to be in it direct it, star in it, and then we would perform it for the family. Uh, to this day, like my cousins in Mexico still talk about certain plays that I wrote. <laughs> I was like seven that they still like remember lines from and stuff. And so I definitely, that was my role in the family was like performer, entertainer, you know, like seeking external validation at every step of the way. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what I'm talking about. You don't know this deep, deep need for people to laugh. So always, it was always, always a part of my life. I even in, in the sixth grade or seventh grade wrote a one hour play based on the OJ Simpson trial. Okay. Yeah. I want to hear everything there is to, okay. Wait, so I was in eighth grade when the trial was going on. So we must be about the same age. I think so. I'm 39. Okay. Me too. So yeah. and the Rockets were in the NBA finals and I'm a big Houston Rockets fan. Sure. And they cut away to the Bronco and they put the basketball game in the small right corner and they made the Bronco the big thing. And I was so upset because I didn't know who O.J. Simpson was. He played football, not basketball. Come on. Yeah. And he, and he was like the actor from Naked Gun. I, like, I, right. didn't, I didn't know what was happening, you know. But then I got super into the O.J. Simpson trial, would watch it religiously, and was really into the Saturday Night Live sketches about the trial. Oh, like, sure. That I thought was really fun. And so then I wrote probably a total ripoff of SNL sketches. That's fascinating. The OJ trial was such a moment of like full enrapturement by media. And it was another piece of theater just through a different lens. Totally. And, and now looking back, I, I thought it was so funny that people cared so much about this thing. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely always been something about like my personality that I keep learning more and more is that if something is sort of revered or made important, by sort of like the general consensus, then my mind wants to make fun of it. Okay, so when did you start making fun of Jesus? <laughs> well, probably when I was 18 or 19 after I read the Bible. And, but I will say, that's interesting you say that because it's still kind of like off topic for me. Like, I'm a recovering Catholic, I say, but I still find a lot of value in it because I see what it does for sure. my family in Mexico and what it does for my mom sure. especially. And so it is, it's one thing I... I have not, in my plays, I make fun of lots of things. I, that's not one thing. Interesting. So that you think is because of respect for your, your family and how they revere that part of their world? Yes. And I think uh, this is, it's interesting. I mean, I went to an international school most of my life. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't really go after any religion, I think, because I think they're all equally silly and kind of absurd. And I don't have an issue. I, I guess I don't have anything to mock in people needing something to believe in. Right. Sure. I mean, I've made theater that, you know. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't being facetious when I called it a different kind of church, right, or a different kind of temple, especially for those who find themselves drawn to it as both audience and performer, right? Because we are so enraptured by the destruction of reality for those few hours. Because when you're in that space, you're like, oh, we're no longer on earth, even. You go into a theater and it really has that moment, especially for kids. You get a kid in a theater at the right time at five or six, that's their, that's their church. I remember when we would, we would drive to Mexico every year for summer and Christmas because mm-hmm. uh, my dad liked driving. And so we would do like a 24-hour drive from Houston to Mexico City. Oh, my God. And one of the things you see a lot on the drive is you see a lot of people in Mexico on their knees and they're walking along the side of the highway. Not walking, they're like kneeling on the side of the highway mm-hmm. because they're currently en route to the temple to the Virgen de Guadalupe in Mexico City. And they will go from like northern Mexico on their knees to ask for a miracle. Oh, my God. And I remember at like eight or nine being like, that is true faith. Like not even judgmental of it, more just like in awe. That is true faith. I would never get on my knees for anything or desperation that would be like, this is my last hope to go have my father cured. Not to take it in such a serious direction, the conversation, but... That to me was like, well, that's faith, you know? And it feels very Mexican. It's like very like of our culture, you know? That's interesting. So you saw all these different touchstones of theater and faith and family, but it sounds like those kind of are the big themes for you. But So you said that you didn't find theater as a professional pursuit until 18. What was happening between 5 and 18? So I was playing soccer. That was my, uh, that's all I cared about. I, I played soccer all day, every day. I watched mm-hmm. soccer all day, every day. Um, and then I, uh, a friend of mine came to school, to the school I was at. And he was this Ecuadorian guy named Bernardo as well. Bernardo Jarrin, shout out to him. He lives in Australia now. And he had a Che Guevara t-shirt. Okay. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, that looks cool. Who's that? <laughs> and he was like, you don't know who Che Guevara is, man. You're Latino. Like, let me blow your mind. And then he was the guy who kind of really got me into leftist ideas, socialism, Karl Marx. He was really into this. This is like 16, right? Yeah. And all this stuff really blew my mind and I got really, really into it. I joke that most middle-class Mexicans go through this phase. Like you have to buy a Che Guevara shirt and like a bunch of necklaces and bracelets. I definitely did that. And because of that, I decided not to go to college in the States and go to school in Mexico. Okay. And I bring this up because I then went to school in Monterey, Mexico. And instead of really going to school, I worked at Amnesty International for a year of my life. And it was really, really cool. I was very young, very idealistic. And like, I think looking back, not ready for what that actually is, like a life in sort of activism and politics. And, you know, it's, it's really exhausting and, and really difficult, mm-hmm. uh, especially in, in Mexico. Why do you say it's so difficult in Mexico? I felt like nobody cared. (laughs) Mm. You know, like we would like organize these protests. We like flew in Rigoberta Menchu, who's like this amazing uh, activist from Central America, to give this talk. And only like 20 people came at this school of like 30,000. And everybody would just make fun of us. Like all the other students were like, well, you you care about like prisoners in Cuba? Like, what? Like, dude, we're 18. Like, let's go get drunk. Like, what are you, you know? It was like this weird tug and pull. And 
And anyway, long story short, I got back to Houston for the summer to stay with my folks after that year. And the day I was supposed to fly back to Mexico for my second year, my mom was downstairs and she called my name like, let's go. And I physically couldn't stand up. Like I just felt, I just, it was, I don't know, you know, what languaging you would use, but I, I felt my body freeze, shut down, and I could not you know, in some way, you know, whatever my body was saying, this is not the path for you. Right. Or something about that path. So it felt really scary. And it was very scary because, you know, in that path, there's like, you can go more extreme, you know, and it gets really scary in Latin America when you're, you know, sure. hanging out in those. And I think something kind of told me you don't want to do that. And so my mom came upstairs and she was truly amazing. She looked at my eyes and she was like, okay, we're just going to stay like, no worries. And I just stayed. And then my parents ultimately said, look, you can't not go to college this semester because then you'll never go back. And they were right about that. Knowing me, I wouldn't have gone back. Sure. They said, can you just take like three or four classes at the local public college, like at University of Houston? And then, of course, I took a journalism class, something else, and I took the acting one. I don't think I was thinking about theater. You had this opportunity and these parents who were supportive, and that's incredible because like certainly growing up when we did – you know, not everyone had parents who were like holistic understanding of her own mental health needs. You had unicorn parents. I won't say they were fully understanding of mental health. My mom's just deeply empathetic. And I think my ah. mom knew something was up, but there's, I mean, it's still to this day in Mexico, there's like no languaging around mental health stuff, right? Like it's just like so far away from, I mean, it's starting to percolate because of, you know, WhatsApp mostly yeah. <laughs> and memes that get sent out on WhatsApp. But it's like, but my mom just knew in that moment something was off, right? Yeah. And I will say one of the things, especially now being a dad, that I really admire in my folks was that if you grow up in one worldview, right, and then you raise your kids in a different worldview with different morals, different ideals, all of this, the fact that my parents were able to adapt on so many things is unicorn-like behavior, right? I mean, yeah. my, my parents were... Like my parents had chaperones when they went on dates. Okay. Oh, right. To go. Yeah. And then when I was like 16, my British girlfriend, her mom called my mom and was like, Hey, can Bernardo spend the night? <laughs> it was like very different kind of like cultural yeah. things that my mom was faced up against. And so I don't know, like, I think if I had to raise my son Diego in like France, all of a sudden it would be so difficult because it's a whole new morality and it's just a different culture you know yeah. like you're not prepared to raise your kids in that so you you found yourself going to local university the draw for theater still wasn't there yet the performance wasn't there but did you want to keep one foot in activism and what did you decide to pursue I, I was like oh my parents need me to go take these three classes so fuck it i'll go and then very quickly after my first day of acting one with carolyn houston boone who changed my life I sat in that room and I thought, oh, yeah, this is actually what I wanted to do my whole life. <laughs> and so I came home and I told my parents, good, good news. I'm not going to be in human rights for the rest of my life. But I'm going to be an actor. So <laughs> and then from then on, it was kind of like full steam ahead. I just knew that was what I wanted to do with my life. You know, how's your mom react? Was she cool with you saying I want to go be an actor? So my parents said you can study theater, but you have to get another another degree. So I did mm. a double degree, actually, not double major. I had to get two degrees. So I was in school for five years. Oh, geez. Like so much. Yeah, but I got a communications degree and a, and a theater degree. 
But my parents were like, you can totally do this. It's fine. We stand by you, but you have to have something to fall back on. And that felt like, okay, fine, whatever. They're offering, I mean, you know, privilege, like they offered to pay for my school, you know, if I did this other degree. And I was like, okay, then fine. And the cool thing was I was never like a great student in high school, but they saw that in theater, like I was there all day. You know, I was there from like 8 a.m. to midnight and I just loved it. You know, I just. What was the magic? It just fit. You know, when something just fits, you're like, this is, you know, it was cool to be around magic people. Like, I think theater people are really magical, wonderful, you know, creative, deeply empathetic. Like, you know, I always say I rather, like, if I go to dinner with you, I don't want to have the, like, five minutes. Like, I'm like, let's go to dinner. And I'm like, what was your mother like? What, like, how are you dealing with that? You know, and that's what theater people are like. They just, like, want to get in there. And they want to make the world a better place, you know, and Mm -hmm. they're insane. They're narcissists. They're so difficult, right? They're so loud. Yeah. They're highly performative, but ultimately I just loved them. I loved my friends that I met there and, you know, telling these stories that we just so, and, and to be honest, when I really fell in love with theater was my sophomore year, my friends and I started a, what then we referred to as a minority theater company. Now it would be like a BIPOC theater company or something. But it was a reaction to the fact that we were doing only old white plays at my school, all Shakespeare, basically. Don't know what you're talking about. And that was, yeah, I know. that What? Theater? White? No. And so it was really exciting because, to be honest, I found a community of people of color who were, like, that's where I filled my revolutionary side, right? Was like... Let's fight against this antiquated system that is telling us our stories are not valid, you know? Right. And that was really exciting and moving and, like, gave me purpose. But what I learned from them was that you have to make it yourself, right? Mm. Which is just the, a fact of theater, right? If you wanted things to change, you had to do it. Like, to go through the system itself was kind of like this faulty, long battle that you were probably going to lose ultimately, right? But if you and your friends got together and wrote plays and found old plays that were written by, you know, like we discovered Jose Rivera. We were like, oh, there's a Puerto Rican guy who's been writing plays for a long time. How come nobody told us, you know? And those are my favorite memories from theater school is like, we would sometimes meet at 1 a.m. and rehearse from one to three. And we would just like drink, pound cigarettes, you know, and we thought we were saving the world. And then we would perform for literally four people. But it meant so much to us. It was so pure. You know, it was awesome. Yeah. I was dating my my wife when we were in college together, and she's a nurse and was in nursing school on the other side of the state. And I would have same the same stories, right? We'd be, you know, up until 3 or 4 in the morning rehearsing and just doing, you know, doing the God's work for the art. And we'd talk and I'd be like, oh yeah, I was in, I was in rehearsal until two in the morning. And then this morning, like I slept until 11, but then I had like voice work for an hour and I had movement after that. And then Greg and I had a fight scene and we had to, and she was like, oh, I saved a life today. And I was like, oh, you and I have much different college experiences, dear. Yeah. I, I remember being on the floor and pretending to be a piece of bacon on a pan and thinking if my father walked in in this moment, it would be quite an interesting revelation to him of what, what I'm doing with, with his money and, and with the fact that he moved to the United States for this for this very freedom. <laughs> but it does feel that way, right? It feels just that vital and important when you're being a tree or a piece of bacon. It's hard to explain the feeling of like... It's, it's magical, yeah. 
So where do you go from college? So my best friend in college was this guy, Andrew Hurst, who's still, he lives in New York. He's wonderful. And he said, hey, I'm going to go to Italy for three months to study Commedia dell'arte and clowning. Do you want to come with me? And I didn't really know what either of those things were, but I thought, sure, I'll live in Italy for three months before I move to New York, right? And so we went with another friend of ours from theater school, and that really changed my life in a lot of ways. Like if you talk about religion and sort of like how you approach life, this is when I'll lose, everyone will turn off the podcast. But for me, clowning is like my sort of philosophy of life. Like that really. Oh my God. Tell me everything. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this is everybody should. I'm so sorry to disappoint. But no way, man. No, I, I mean, I love it. Let's talk archetypes for four hours. Let's do it. Yeah, I know. Well, I think what I, what I really took away from it was this sort of the idea that the planning is a mistake and that to like plan all this stuff and then go on stage with like all these funny ideas you have instead mm-hmm. of reacting to the moment and the fun and the opportunity that happens on stage. Right. And to not be afraid of failure to stand on stage and fail for five minutes. If it means you lead to actual universal truths and that will be the funniest thing of all time. Right. That what was really necessary for me as someone who desperately needs to be liked and needs to be validated was to like face that head on and just like stand on stage in the shit as our teacher would refer to it. Like be in the shit, be in the shit. It's okay. Like don't be Mm -hmm. afraid of it. You know, don't be afraid of the silence. You know, they don't need to laugh every second. It was wonderful for me as an artist, but uh, more so as a human, to be honest, it really kind of changed my life in a really strong way. You know, it's funny, the way that you describe standing in the shit and being willing to try and fail and try and fail again, that's how we talk about, and my even talks about what we do as a company, because they're like, oh, what, what's innovation? Talk to us about being innovative, and innovation is really an important, it's like the, the buzzwordiest buzzword in corporate America. I'm like, it's just improv. Like, it's the same shit. You're just trying a bunch of stuff, a bunch, more of it's going to fail than doesn't. And being willing to try is all that being innovative is. It has it has nothing to do with like Joni Ive being like, I'm going to make the most beautiful iPhone ever. This is going to change the world, right? Nobody sets out to, that's not innovation, right? It's trying something and being willing to accept whatever the failure is of that, of that attempt. Yeah. Well, I actually do think that everyone should have to take an improv class. I think that's like very helpful in life. But, you know, I watch my son play, you know, my son's three and a half. And there's no judgment from him on his play. He hasn't lived long enough. Like the world hasn't poisoned him with all the bullshit, right? So it's just so pure and fun and magical and it's all discovery and it's all a wonderment, you know? And I think it's so funny that we're always just trying to get back to that. Not even in performance, just in life. Like now that I primarily write, you know, my favorite moments in writing are when I can feel that I'm playing. You know, mm, mm. I'm not like thinking, does this scene, is this a lead character being active? Like, forget all that, all the books that you read and all that. Yeah. When I'm just like having fun and I'm like writing like this, you know, and feeling my body feel joy. Like that's, it's like, oh yeah, that's the whole fucking point is to have fun where we live. You know? <laughs> right. Do you write by yourself? I mean, I've yeah. written things with friends, but I mostly write screenplays now. I wrote plays for a long time. But my favorite part is always the first draft because that's, it's all discovery. It's all fun. A teacher mm-hmm. of mine used to say this, which I think is just like helpful for life. His name's Brett C. Leonard. He's an amazing playwright. And he would say, you know, 
you can think in your head that the ending is that the mom kills the guy, right? They said, but if you start writing, it's like a road trip. And let's say you and your friend are on your way to Las Vegas, right? Mm-hmm. But if halfway to Las Vegas, you see a sign that says world's biggest ball of yarn, and you really want to t- take a right and go there, and then that's where your play ends, he's like, that's totally fine. You don't have to get to Vegas, right? Because the forcing it to get there actually will make the piece worse, right? Right. And uh, anyway. Well, I mean, it's, it's the same lesson that you learned about acting, right? In, in Italy, it, it's that, you know, it's whatever happens, happens. Allow yourself to be present in the moment of reality and just be open to what's happening. It's so valuable when you are actually able to remind yourself like, okay, it's just the right now, right? I can't stress out about tomorrow. It's not there yet. You know, I can just do what I'm doing right now. So I want to get back a little bit. I want to figure out a a little bit more about, because I have all the secret data on you that Adrian put together for us. Can you talk a little bit about the Ola Awards? And you went there, you were going to meet John Leguizamo best known for his role as Luigi Mario in the Super Mario Brothers live-action film. Yeah, so John Leguizamo was my hero. I mean, Freak was very important to a lot of Latino theater artists for a lot of reasons. Mainly, it was like mainstream and important and people cared. And it was a, you know, a story that felt like he was telling my story in a lot of ways, right? So when I moved to New York, I joined this organization because someone told me to at an audition. Ola, it's called Hispanic Organization of Latino Actors. They have a yearly award show and John Leguizamo was getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. So I was like, I got to go to this thing. And I was in my grandfather's suit because I didn't have my own suit yet. You know, it's like my ill-fitting suit. I was a volunteer. And then this woman walked in from the front door and I was very taken by her. And she is now my wife and the mother of my son. And, uh, and, but that night changed my life, obviously, as, as you know, right? The moment you meet your partner, it's, I was so broke. So the, I, I was there standing in the front and she approached me and she said something like, what does a volunteer do here? And I said something like all the important things. And I was like, oh, that was really bad. She locked away and I was like, oh, this gorgeous woman just kind of flirted with me and now it's over. And at the end of the night, after a lot of free red wine, I approached her and I said, I would like to take you to dinner sometime. And she said, why don't we go get a drink right now? And I said, oh, great. The problem was I had like $7 in my bank account. And so I called my roommate at the time, Alejandro Siscos, and he got on the L train. I mean, this is what a great friend. He got on the L train. He took out his $40. That was like all he had to his name. And he handed me $40 cash as I lied to Lauren, my wife, and said I was going to the bathroom real quick before ordering drinks. And I grabbed the $40 and I went in and I just remember thinking, I really hope she's not like a drinker. It's New York, right? And there's like 40, this is it. Like, you know, that's two, three drinks, right? I ordered a beer. I never drink beer, but I ordered a beer because I knew it would be cheaper. You know, I got like a Bud Light or something. Anyway, and uh, that night changed my life. She and I stayed up till six in the morning talking and I just, I was like, well, that's, I'm done. Like I'm fucked. And, and then we dated for seven years, got married. But you know, that who you spend the rest of your life with obviously changes everything. And she sure put up with a lot of versions of me and a lot of immaturity and a lot of brokenness and a lot of lack of money, self-esteem. <laughs> and, you know, when now we're here in LA, it's, it's really wild. Without a doubt, the most important day of my life, you know. How did you and Lauren get from New York to LA then? I mean, I was so broke for the first three years of our relationship, you know. I mean, I remember 
many days having to choose between like buying a $1 slice of pizza or a pack of cigarettes because I was a smoker at the time. You know, not mm-hmm. something I recommend, but like, and my wife was always, you know, she had a clear vision for her life. She was a very successful documentary filmmaker even then. Oh, cool. And so it was just about growing together and like trying to figure out how to mix our love and our passion of art with like also maybe possibly raising a family one day. <laughs> mm-hmm. And to be totally frank, what happened was I was so addicted to theater and so involved in the theater And I think I got to the point where I needed to leave New York. If not, I was going to be like one of those guys with like seven roommates doing a play at La Mama at 60 years old for like a $500 stipend. Now, were you one of those guys in your 20s doing living with seven guys? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that like? Yeah. Again, it's great. It's amazing. It's like theater school, right? It's like to be a theater actor in New York when you're working is really exciting because you're like, I'm working, I'm working. I'm in all these plays. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the New York times just reviewed us. Right. Like, but you're so broke. I mean, only very few Broadway performers are making an actual living wage for New York city. Right. I yeah. mean, that's the thing that you don't, nobody tells you this. And so I, I remember a, a moment that really sort of like told me you need to leave New York was I was doing a play at the public theater, which was like my dream come true. I was the lead in a Shakespeare show there, which was like literally all I ever wanted. And a friend of mine came to see the play. And then he and I went to the bar in the theater and I ordered two old fashions and my card bounced. Mm. And I was like 32 years old. And I thought to myself, I'm working at my dream theater and I can't afford two drinks while I'm the lead in a play there. Right. And I thought, man, this career is for the fucking birds, man. (laughs) I got to get out of here, you know? And so I think that's basically what led us to move to LA is to like pursue film and television, you know? How long ago was that? That was six years ago. So you're saying as soon as you landed in LA? I joined a theater company. (laughs) (laughs) Right. How, How has the last two years been? I mean, it's been a shit show for everybody, but I mean, the arts have taken it on the chin more than... Most more than most industries. I mean, I've been super, super, super lucky. I I had a life transition that was happening naturally coincide with this moment. I mean, look, I am a playwright, and eight of my shows have been postponed. So, like, sure, that's sad. But if that's the great tragedy of my COVID experience, I'll take it. You know, what happened was I got hired to write my first screenplay two months before COVID hit. Mm. And that changed my life for a lot of reasons. And then that led to the screenplay that I'm now working on. That led to me joining the WGA. So I got super lucky because as I was transitioning away from acting, acting died and disappeared as an industry for a little bit, right? Yeah. And playwriting disappeared. And so I was very, very lucky that at that exact moment, I started writing screenplays for a living. So I just feel super, super lucky and grateful that that happened because I know that difficult time and I, I got really lucky. I got super, super lucky. That's great. You know, looking forward is writing, you think going to be the next big phase and you're going to sit in that for a long time. Are you going to try and keep a foot in acting? Are you going to, well, honestly writing, I about four or five years ago started feeling like I didn't like acting anymore. I was going to auditions feeling really bitter. Mm -hmm. And you know, the truth is, I was auditioning for a lot of crap as like Mexican, like legit. Some of the roles are called like Mexican number two. 
a lot of undocumented people, a lot of narcos, mm-hmm. so many narcos, so many fucking drug stories. And I just felt so like, what am I even saying to the world? And what's the point of this? And I'm mm-hmm. sure you identify with this. And then I had a son and I'm like, what the fuck is, what am I doing with my life? You know, I'm mm-hmm. just literally participating in white gringos, men's idea of what Mexico is. And just like saying to the world that we are drug dealers for what, like to be validated. Like, you know, this is so like the perversion of that theater kid who was in the theater at 3am. Like, that's not what that kid wanted. And when I started writing plays, I was like, well, at least I get to say what I want to say about the world, you know, and I have way more control and I'm not just a cog in this machine. So to be honest, I just like writing more because I don't have to be a narco because <laughs> I, I choose what it is, you right. know, in my movies, like people are just dads and mothers and grandmothers who happen to be Mexican. Right. And I feel like to be totally frank, if I sat down with my son t- 10 years from now and showed him my acting demo reel or had him read my plays and my screenplays, I mean, the decision is so easy for me, yeah. you know? Because if he saw my demo reel, I don't know that he would get to know me. He would know a side of me, which is this person who wanted to be validated and wanted to be liked, right? Right. But if he read my plays and my screenplays, he'll know me, like, pretty deeply, you know, even the scary, ugly parts. But I'd much rather him get to know me that way than seeing me in a commercial yelling, Viva Guacamole, which I did and is is out there in the world. (laughs) You, You transported us. No, I mean, and that's lovely. I can't wait to hear in 10 years what your kid thinks of some of your plays. Well, you don't understand. Comedia dell'arte, there, there's these archetypes, and you ha- there's a lot of mask work, and you got to listen, just trust me. We, I usually ask a couple of lightning round questions to wrap up. Let's pretend there's an alternate universe, completely different version. What is the alternate universe version of you doing? Probably working at the UN in some capacity. Oh, interesting. Like some kind of... Like, I probably would have gone from activism and then, like, needed to make money, just like with the arts, and then been like, maybe I'll go work for the Mexican government and, like, try to, like, clear up the mines and, you know, Central America with the UN. You know, like, but it would have been, you know, like, the perverted version of activism, but, like, now I can pay my rent, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's not perverted. I probably, I I think that that was always appealing to me, like... uh, Something very international because going to international education, like I'm always happier when there's more foreign people at the table than Mm -hmm. a bunch of Americans. So I just feel safer to be totally frank. And so I think I would have wanted to be surrounded by international, you know, people. Okay. So then looking back at the five-year-old who is screaming to, to save Jesus, what does he think about how you turned out? Oh man, I hope he's happy. (laughs) You know, I'm super lucky, man. I, I, I make a, a living doing art. It's, it's insane. I can't believe it happened. It took a long time to get here, and I just feel really grateful. I feel so lucky to ha- be married to my wife, you know, honestly, who has put up with a lot and dealt with a lot, you know, to get me to this version of myself, you know. And uh, honestly, as you know, being a dad is the greatest. It's the gift. It's like, like now I'm like, oh, life is great. I just can't. <laughs> I just want to keep doing this dad thing, you know? My very last question, I, would, I don't ask this one of everybody. Given the opportunity, though, would you play Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar? Oh, for sure. <laughs> of course. But, but 
But the problem is I am legit tone deaf. One of my wife's favorite things to do in the car is she'll be like, hit this note. And she's like, ah, and then I try to match it and I can't. I literally, I can't do it. So no one would ever cast me as Jesus. But if someone was dumb enough to, of course I would. This was awesome. Bernard, thank you so much. This was absolutely the best hour of my day by far. Wow. I'll take it. If you were inspired by what we talked about today, you might be inspired by what our company, Building Momentum, does. We solve for impact. We're a creative problem-solving agency that helps people gain the confidence and permission to solve problems on their own using a whole variety of tools to do so. 3D printing, laser cutting, welding, empathy, facilitation, drones, uh, electronics, robotics, dance, podcasts. If you have a problem, like we all do, we would love to be a part of solving it with you. Find us on the web at www.buildmo.com. That's www.buildmo.com.